Susan and I, as I mentioned, are so happy to be back from Israel. I was grateful for the opportunity to be able to go and uh, so happy that Don and Ann Dent were with us two Sundays ago, although I was sad to have scheduled them on a Sunday I was gone. I don't know what I was doing, but um, but I know that they blessed your hearts. And last week having Cal uh, preach uh, to you to wrap up our series on missions and to uh, to turn the corner a little bit and turn our attention a little bit more toward the Christmas season and, and Advent itself. Um, I'm sure over the weeks to come, uh, I'm not going to be able to help myself, but to share with you some of the things that we saw and experienced and smelled and places we walked and uh, the way that I hope uh, never fades from my mind's eye uh, when I read the scripture now and hear uh, stories like when Jesus announced that he was the Messiah in his hometown of Nazareth and they ran him off to a cliff to throw him over to kill him. And to stone him to death. And the Bible says that he walked through the midst of them. And then he moves away from that town, smart guy. <laughs> and went to Capernaum and set up his ministry in Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. But now to have those pictures in my mind of the valleys and the, uh, the areas where he might have walked and traversed from one city to the other. And uh, the Galilean hills and to have that fresh and I pray that that never leaves me. We spent some time in Jerusalem, and um, amazing thing about uh, the city with all of its history. Uh, we went up to the northern, uh, kind of near the northern border of Israel, a place called Tel Dan. And uh, our tour guide said, Tel Dan what? And I said, <laughs> that's my kind of humor. Uh, Tel Dan, I don't know what we tell Dan, but... Uh, Atel is a place where uh, multiple layers of civilization have been built up over uh, centuries, and it's where archaeologists do their uh, prime work. And uh, Anyway, it is a, a place where there is a 4,000-year-old city gate from the Canaanite period so long ago. I mean, we, I don't know if we have things that are 400 years old here, let alone 4,000 years old. It was just really amazing for so many reasons. So blessed to be able to do that. Being able to stand on the Mount of Olives and looking out over Jerusalem, over the Kidron Valley, and uh, seeing a route that likely Jesus took from the Last Supper when He went down to uh, the Mount of Olives to teach His disciples one last time, and then down to uh, Gethsemane where He was arrested, and then the likely path that they took Him over to the house of Caiaphas where He first met with the Sanhedrin, and they began to uh, question Him before He was turned over to Pilate. It was just so amazing to see those last days and to try to visualize them in my mind's eye. We went to, uh, uh, of course, Nazareth and spent some time around the Sea of Galilee, uh, the city of Tiberias. We got to go to Bethlehem, which is a happy moment uh, with Christmas coming up. And uh, we visited the Church of the Nativity. Now, I had seen pictures of inside the Church of the Nativity uh, in books, and that never does it justice. But this is a, an ages-old church and building, and down below is what's called the, the grotto, where some say that Jesus was born into this earth, and a cave uh, very similar to what the shepherds would have used as a stable for their animals. And as we uh, went down into the basement, of, uh, effectively, into this church building, there's a small area, it's probably three feet tall, and... It looks like almost a cupboard where you might store dishes. And uh, there's some lanterns hanging there. And uh, you may have seen the picture as well, a multi-pointed silver star on the floor. Because what they've done in this cave, 
Because you've got uh, looky-loos like me who might come with a hammer and chisel and chisel off a piece of the cave and take it home as a memento. They've covered it with marble to protect it. But this one little spot down in this cutout is a multi-pointed star, and you can get down and you can touch the rock that is there that perhaps is where Jesus was born. And oddly enough, when I touched the rock, nothing changed. (laughs) I didn't expect it to, but it was still fun to to touch what was so curious to so many different people. One of the, this is in no order of importance, and I'm going to tell you more, I'm sure, over the days I just can't help myself. But one of the other things that we did get to visit was the National Holocaust Museum. And uh, to to go, and uh, I visited the one in Washington, D.C. 20 years ago, and to have the opportunity to see this one was really, really amazing. And to not forget the horrific events of World War II and what happened in Nazi Germany and around Europe. And um, I was reading from Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian-born man, became a well-known, world-renowned psychologist uh, back in the 20th century, and uh, wrote a book called Man's Quest for Meaning. And he himself was a a survivor of the Holocaust. And uh, in part of his writings, talk about the issue and subject of hope. And his reflections and descriptions of uh, what helped sustain people who suffered the horrors of a concentration camp. And for him, one of the main aspects was a four-letter word, H-O-P-E, hope. Either its presence in a life allowed someone to be sustained and to endure unimaginable, unimaginable uh, challenges and difficulties and horrors. And its absence helped uh, cripple and um, destroy other lives. The importance of hope. The importance of hope in order to push back despair. The importance of hope to go into dark places with a light and a a sense of uh, a certainty that something better is beyond. Something more waits through this difficulty. That is hope. Hope is what fuels An individual's future, a church's future, a country and our world's future. Christmas is about hope. Christmas is all about hope. It is God's call for all of us to fix our hope in the decisive action of what God has done in the coming of Jesus in Christmas Day. And then in a few months' time, we will remember Easter and what happened at the end of Jesus' life, of course, which we'll celebrate and remember again today in the Lord's Supper. The God of love. The God who loves you. He loves you so much that He would come into forsaking the glories of His heaven and the advantages there and coming and stepping into a broken world to do what only He can do, for a desperate people like you and me, for what we most deeply need, to plant hope in our hearts, the hope of Jesus. Today we're going to read uh, in our short time together here out of Matthew chapter 1, one of the areas of uh, the Christmas story. Uh, You can pick up more of the story in the Gospel of Luke. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. 
But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Father, we pray that in these moments together that your spirit would be speaking to us, that you would dig out our ears and help us to hear, that you would tenderize our hearts and make us responsive to you as you would speak and as you would lead and as you would penetrate our life. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen. God brings hope through His presence. That's one aspect we're going to look at this morning. God's Word also brings hope. God's Word brings hope. And we're going to see how Joseph and our obedience to God demonstrates that our hope is rightly placed in God. As we think about this passage for a moment, the first part of chapter 1 uh, Matthew is giving us a genealogy. And sometimes I know if you might be at home and you open your Bible and say, where am I going to read today? And you might open to Matthew chapter 1 and you come across a long list of names and you might be tempted to <sighs> kind of flip the page and move on to something that might be a little bit more interesting. But you know, the genealogy is there for a very important reason because it's helping us to connect the opening pages of the New Testament and helping us know that, that this is the ongoing work of God. From the very beginning, God is now fulfilling His plan in the coming of Jesus. A promise was given because of the brokenness of men and women through Abraham. A promise was given and is now being fulfilled. So Matthew, here's what he's saying. Before I tell you about Jesus, I want you to know that Jesus alone has the pedigree that the Scripture requires to be known as the Messiah, to be counted as the one who is the special messenger and the only one able to do what needed to be done on behalf of God. That's what Matthew is trying to say through the genealogy. And then the story of Jesus. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. You might think, boy, the, the music is now rising, the flowers are blooming, the birds are chirping, we're going to hear this beautiful, peaceful, wonderful story about the arrival of Jesus into the world, God's long-awaited, promised rescuer. That's the way I anticipate the story, but that's not the way it lays out here. God meets Joseph in the midst of a crisis. Joseph and Mary are not just engaged, they're betrothed to one another. In a first century context, that was like an engagement plus. It was amplified in importance. In fact, agreements had already been made. Families had been brought together and agreed on what was going to happen in the joining of their families together. And uh, to unravel a betrothment was uh, much more serious than simply breaking off and engagement. They were, in all intents and purposes, considered husband and wife, even though they weren't sharing a home yet, they weren't intimate with one another yet. 
Um, but things were being prepared for that coming day, usually within a year's time of their uh, agreement together. But there's a crisis afoot. Joseph finds out that his betrothed Mary is pregnant. And you know, first century people were no fools. They were no mere simpletons not understanding how babies were made. Joseph understood the implications of what must have occurred if his betrothed is now pregnant. But here's what happens. Instead of uh, being debilitated by the crisis, guess who shows up? God does. The angel steps forth into Joseph's life and into this story. And that presence of God is what brings hope for Joseph. It brings hope out of what could have been a catastrophe. It brings hope in the midst of a crisis. You see, the presence of God is what reassures Joseph that what is happening is God's work. It comforts Joseph. It invites him to trust God even if he can't see what is happening. He can't see what would come to pass. Do you think Joseph knew that in a very short time he would be run out of Bethlehem? Chased and running for his life, literally? Do you think Joseph knew that he was going to be a refugee in a foreign country until the right time came when the, the particular ruler seeking uh, the death of his uh, child, this child, was uh, gone and no longer a threat? Of course he didn't. But see, when the angel shows up in Joseph's story in this moment, in this crisis, it is God saying, Joseph, if you trust me, I will plant in you a hope for what I am doing if you will trust me. Where was Joseph's hope? Where was it fixed? Was it fixed in laying back and trusting in the virtue of Mary? No. His hope was in fixing himself in the presence of God. You see, God is with you in your pain. He is with you in your sorrow, in your disappointment. And even out of the most terrible circumstances, God can bring something good out of it for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. When else do we need hope the most except in the midst of a crisis? You see, God's presence in your life and in mine is what brings hope. God's Word also brings hope. Joseph understandably wanted to break the betrothal. Perhaps he was even required to do so uh, in uh, the interpretation of the law of that day. But as he was considering this, the Scripture says that something comes to encourage and to inform his thinking, to help give him additional information and the ability to step forth and make decisions that were honoring to God and obedient in their consequences. You see, God's Word through the angel is what brings hope as well. The presence of God to comfort, the presence of God to hold Joseph, and now the Word of God to come and to speak definitive statements about God's intent in Joseph's life. God's Word reminds Joseph of the promises that God had long ago made. Isaiah chapter 7, the prophecy was reminded that the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son. And what God is saying through this reassuring word is, Joseph, what has been long planned is now coming to pass. And because of my word, you can have hope in what is to pass in your future. In what area this morning 
do you need to allow God's Word to guide you? In what area this morning of your life are you wrestling with despair, perhaps? With discouragement that that threatens to overwhelm you and you've been resistant to trust the Word of God to inform your decisions and to help you step forward in faith and in power. Where do you need to hear and trust God today? That is where hope comes from. It's by placing it in God, trusting in His presence, trusting in His Word, and walking with Him faithfully. God's presence brings hope. God's Word brings hope. And finally, obedience to God demonstrates that you and I have our hope in God. At the end of this little passage, the Word of God is reminded, Isaiah is quoted, the virgin will be with child. When Joseph woke up in verse 24, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. Joseph would only do that if it, were the, if it were the hope that God had placed in him for what God was doing. There's no other reason for him to make the decision that he did. God's presence and God's word to Joseph allowed him to take the concrete steps forward to trust God, to trust for a better tomorrow, to trust that God, even in the midst of what he can't see right now, to trust that God will be with him and meet him in that future moment. The name that Joseph was told to give the child is Jesus. Literally, it means the Lord saves. What did Jesus save us from? Well, the Bible over and over tells us it is from from sin. Sin. That which destroys and ruins our relationship with God. That which cuts us off from God, that which allows me not to relate rightly to God. It's sin. And Jesus is the one, the only one, who can come into the world and to take care of that issue that separates and ruins your friendship with God. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the reason that we remember this table. We come around the Lord's table regularly to be reminded of who Jesus is, why He came, and His great love for you and for me. Let me invite the deacons to come and join me here at the front. I stood outside the uh, western wall, the Wailing Wall, around the, uh, the Temple Mount, and um, saw there two wash basins, one for the men's section and the other for the women's section. Is reminded of how frequently in the Old Testament, especially, and still today in many, many places, People do uh, external ritual washing, um, and I do it today for germs. (laughs) But it can also be a reminder, not of what God does on the outside of of a life, but what God alone does on the inside of cleansing, of washing, of purifying, so that we can be the people God intends us to be. We have two elements here, bread and a cup, as we always do. Bread reminding us that the body of Jesus was broken on a cross. It was pierced. It was beaten and abused as a consequence of your sin and mine. And we have a cup that reminds us of the blood that He shed, a life that was exchanged for your life, 
so that what you and I are deserving of in our death, because of sin, we can turn to Jesus instead and receive His life into us and know the cleansing that only He can bring into a life. This morning, if, if that's a relationship that you've entered into and you've asked the Lord to forgive your sin and to remove it from you, then this table is for you. You're invited to participate with us. If this morning you aren't sure if you've ever really entered into a personal relationship for yourself, not just because you grew up in a church or because you're familiar with Christmas songs, that's not the reason to participate in this meal. This is a reflection of a relationship that God has already started with you. And uh, if that's not what you can describe yourself as being, that's okay. You could just let these elements pass by you today, but I would invite you to come and seek us out, me or Stephen or Chris or Steve, uh, maybe a friend that brought you today, um, and ask them, what, what does it mean to have this personal friendship with God that Jesus Himself makes possible? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and He broke it. And He passed it out. And He said, take and eat in remembrance of Me. Living God, we thank You for Your great sacrifice, for Your willingness to come into this, Your earth, stepping down out of heaven, setting aside Your advantages and privileges, and coming to live and walk among us. We pray this day that we would be reminded of Your great sacrifice, not just Your birth into the world, but also the life that You lived, the Word that You taught, and the sacrifice that You've made for us. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Take and eat, Jesus said, in remembrance of Him. On that same evening, Jesus took a cup, and it was filled, and it was passed, and it was shared. Jesus said that uh, this is a new covenant in my blood, and that we are to do this in remembrance of Him, what He did, what He taught, and who He is. Living God, we do thank You for Your blood. We thank You for the reminder that without blood that is shed, sins cannot be forgiven. And that is what You have done, O perfect Lamb of God, wrapping human flesh around Yourself, living among us that first Christmas, dying that first Good Friday, being raised from the dead that first Easter. We remember that all in this moment when we thank You for it in Jesus' name. Amen.
I was chatting with Ken Akins this morning, and he uh, told me something he tells the Agape class apparently regularly, that uh, Christmas is a time for receiving, receiving the gifts of God, the gift of God, the coming of Jesus, and what more appropriate way of appreciating that than in the receiving of this Lord's Supper. In so doing, we do proclaim His death until He comes again. The early church often celebrated this moment with eager anticipation, trusting that any moment Jesus could return to claim those who are His sons and daughters. And so with that, we're going to stand and sing our closing hymn together. It's a hymn of invitation this morning. If, if you don't know what it is to have a personal friendship with the living God, and you would like to explore what that means, this is an opportunity during our singing. You can come forward. Or if uh, you would like to talk about what it means to become more a full-fledged member of the church and would like to explore what that means, this is an opportunity for you to come as well. Would you stand together as we sing our last song? Mm-hmm.